Matthew chapter 23 is all right. A little pop quiz here. What do you think Jesus talked about on his last public message? What do you think he talked about? Okay, well, everybody's looking really hard at their Bibles now. This is really good because that's what we're studying. All right, let me tell you, if you were here last week, you should be able to answer that question. Jesus addressed something that is absolutely critical for every single person to understand. He talked about the landmines in life and in ministry. You step on a landmine, it has a strong potential to really injure you, disfigure you, dismember you destroy you and others. And in a series, it's kind of like an indictment where he is basically going after the scribes and the Pharisees for misleading his people. He gives all these warnings of saying, you absolutely don't want to end up in this situation as he addresses the crowd. These are Jesus, some of his last public statements we're going to encounter as we've made our way through the Gospel of Matthew. They're absolutely critical that we understand them Embrace them, believe them, and especially heed them. Now, we uh, last week we talked a little bit about some of these landmines, but let me just tell you why this is so critically important. A failure to learn to lead well will lead to failure. And you are a leader. If you are a parent, mom, dad, you are a leader of your children. You're a grandparent. You're a leader. If you've got some sort of uh, ministry opportunity, whether you're working with kids or college kids, in one of our many ministries, you're a leader. You have a position of influence at your place of employment. You're a leader. And a failure to learn how to lead well is going to learn lead to failure. That is why Jesus walks through these landmines and saying you absolutely don't want to step on one of these. And last week we looked at some of the landmines as we began in chapter 23. Landmines such as hypocrisy, focusing on your image, Pride it was wonderful. Uh, no one actually suffered from pride here at the church. It was, it was great. Uh, blocking the way rather than leading the way. And self-centeredness. That brings us to landmine number six, beginning in verse 15. And that is leading others while being lost yourself. Look at it here as we pick it up in verse 15. Jesus says, whoa, watch out. This is a huge warning. Woe to you. You're at a miserable condition. You scribes and you Pharisees. The scribes were like the legal lawyers. They, they, they understood the word well. They studied it with their life. The Pharisees, they were kind of capitalized on the theology, but they had also added all these rules and additions. And they, they were really kind of the conservative branch of Judaism. And Jesus said, you, group, you two groups, you missed it. You, in fact, he says in verse 15, are hypocrites. You're play actors. You kind of feign one way or you change your behavior depending upon the setting in which you're at. You're like a chameleon. And he says, woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. Let me tell you who you really are. You actually are hypocritical. Let me tell you why. Because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. A proselyte is a convert, like in this case, a convert to Judaism. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. And what Jesus is saying, you're, you've set yourself up to lead others when you yourself are lost. You don't even know the way. In fact, you're building up with these rules and regulations. It's just further proof that you have missed the heart of God in relationship with him. Now, what would happen here? Now, Jew, Jews didn't have missionaries. Like you see Christian, Christians, we have missionaries. We send them out. Fellowship, we're sending missionaries all the time. 
they're coming and going so many times, I don't even know if they're, they've left or they're coming. I mean, I, that's, I mean that just, we had a good example of that this morning. Judaism didn't have missionaries. But the people themselves, especially like the Pharisees, they were missionary in their approach. And that's what Jesus is capitalizing on it. What they, they were actively trying to have people become Jews. Now, some Jews, what they would do is they'd enter conversation with Gentiles. And, they, and to become a Jew, there were kind of these two major steps. First of all, you had to walk away from being a pagan pantheistic where you had multiple gods, okay, where you were a monotheist. You believed in the one true God, Yahweh, although they had trouble because they could never say his name, so they wouldn't say him. But they, they wanted to convert you to monotheism, that you believed in one God and to the basic tenets of Judaism. If they could get you to believe in one God, Yahweh, and to believe some of the basic tenets of Judaism, you became a God-fearing Gentile. And you see these in the book of Acts. You even see them in the gospel accounts. We run into a couple of them. But that was, that was the first step. The second step, though, for males was to get them to be circumcised. If they could get them circumcised, they could be considered a full-fledged Jew. Now, the Pharisees, they actually didn't deal with any Gentiles unless they were a God-fearing Gentile, and their interactions with them would only be to try to get these males to be circumcised. And so what would happen? The Pharisees go, maybe perhaps they were going to be discussing or, or settling legal matters. After they got done doing that, then they would try to convert these God-fearing Gentiles to actually become full-fledged Jews and be circumcised. They'd go a long ways of doing that. Jesus says, you know what? Do not mistake and confuse busyness with effectiveness. They would go and they would get somebody to convert. And they'd get them to follow through with all their traditions. And when he said, you turned them into a child of hell, he basically just said, you have, this is where someone is destined to go. You have... In your zeal and all the money you put forth to get one convert, you've actually sent him or this person in the wrong direction. You see, we teach what we know and we reproduce what we are. That was true of the Pharisees and scribes. By the way, that's true of us. Let me give you this leadership principle. The direction of our lives directly affects the people that we influence. The direction of our lives directly affects and influences the people that we influence. Now, you might just say, well, hey, I'm just a parent. No, you're a parent and you are influencing the direction of your children. How you live is basically telling them, it's communicating a message, this is what life is all about. You may say, hey, I'm just a math teacher, or I just kind of work in this factory, or hey, Hey, I'm just a, an executive with this, this company here. I'm just a professor. Actually, you communicate with your life what you believe, what is valuable, what's the purpose of life, who is God, what's important, what are your priorities. You cannot help but communicate that. And you know what? Your direction, what you set, it communicates to those who are under influence, this is what life is all about. If you are a silent Christian, following Jesus, perhaps trying to do this incognito. I don't want anybody to know that I follow Jesus. So I'm just going to do my job or I'm just going to live in my community or I will never, ever broach the subject of Christ with any family member. In essence, you're saying that really isn't important. You can live without ever getting into those kind of religious details. And after all, we don't talk about politics and religion, right? Right. That's somewhere. It's part of our American creed or something like that. In essence, what you're saying is those things aren't ultimately all that important. What do you talk about? What, what do you communicate with your words 
and your life. Whether you are a teacher, you're a parent, you're a coach, and especially if you are a ministry leader. What is the purpose of life? Who is God? What is the gospel? What is this book we call the Bible? Nice bunch of stories? Or is it God's inspired word? It's authoritative in our life. Where do you go when you die? You see, you're going to communicate with your life what you believe. And if you believe the wrong things or you're silent on the right things, you're sending people in the wrong direction. You don't want to have a situation like someone goes, oh, what? I cannot. Really? Sarah is a Christian? Bill's a Christian? I would have never known. Because you know what happened? You never took full advantage of your influence. In fact, your silence speaks louder than your words. Let me tell you about this landmine. When you're leading others while being lost yourself, you don't want to step on it. You might have a lot of persuasive power, but if you don't know Christ, you don't understand that you come to Christ as a, a, a sinner incapable of pleasing God and needing his righteousness and his forgiveness, you're sending the wrong message about Jesus who died on our behalf and rose again. Let me give you another landmine you'd ever want to step on Jesus hits. And that is your words lack integrity. Now, we're going to read some things here and go, what in the world is going on here? But the Jews had come up with a kind of a roundabout way to seeming to swear by God, but at the same time to buffer the consequences if you didn't follow through or you didn't tell quite the truth. Listen to this. Try this on. Okay, beginning here in verse 16. He says, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, whoever says by the, swears by the temple, well, that's nothing. I mean, you just swore by the temple. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, well, that's going to make you obligated. Okay, and you're like, what, what are you talking about? Jesus gives a few more examples. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold and the temple that sanctified the gold? Or, verse 18, whoever swears by the altar, well, that's really nothing because he swore by the altar. However, but whoever swears by the offering on it, well, then, well, then you're obligated. Or, you see, he says, you know what? You're blind men. You're not seeing. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by both the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. One of the things you want to make really certain is that you don't have some sort of sanctimonious justification of kind of living and lying with impunity. And, you know, we're like, okay, well, we don't do that. We don't swear about temples and chairs and things like that, right? Well, let me tell you how this works in Americana. We like, well, I swear to God, right? You hear people saying that or cross my heart and uh, I hope to die and I'll swear on my mother's grave or I'll swear on the Bible. Or, or These are some of my personal favorites when people say this. And it happens all the time. Well, to tell you the truth or, or this one. Well, just being honest with you. Okay. You know what we're saying? It's like everything previous to what I say, or my general M.O. in life, is to tell, not to tell the truth. But on this rare occasion, since I'm really, I'm cutting you straight here, I'm, I'm a salesperson, and I'm going to actually tell you the truth on this, the, honestly, or to speak honest with you, it's the same sort of deal. Your words, if they lack integrity, they are a landmine. Jesus said, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 37, hey, let's just have a real simple statement. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. And then Jesus says, and anything beyond this is evil. You see, if you and I, we're living our life accountable to God, we're like aware that 
we're accountable to him 24-7? Like he's here right now. Your conversation he had yesterday, he is absolutely aware of what you said. And your yes is yes and your no is no. And if you've gotten in this deal where you're shading the truth all the time, you live in the gray area. You, you tell so many lies, you don't even know what's true yourself, or you can't keep track of them, it's almost driving you crazy. You have stepped on this landmine, and it's got widespread effect. He says, you don't want to end up like that. You see, let me ask you, are you true to your word? You know what happens if you're not true to your word? You lose credibility. And if people can't trust you in your normal discourse of conversation, then how in the world are they going to trust you when you actually talk about things like God, salvation, the Bible? Really? If you've got a track record of being untrustworthy, those topics come up and they're critically important. Yeah, how do we know if you're telling us the truth? Let me give you this leadership principle. Really simple. Mean what you say and say what you mean. That's it. Mean what you say and say what you mean. Let me tell you one word that no parent, grandparent, professor, business owner, or employee ever wants to be labeled as if they're a Christian. You ready? Fake. F-A-K-E. You never want to be labeled it. Let me tell you how you get that label. Simply just let your words lack integrity. It's a landmine. Let me give you another landmine. Landmine number eight. That is losing sight of the big picture. That's exactly what happened with these guys. Look at verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This must have been a really tough conversation for the scribes and Pharisees. You know, everybody is listening. They're on the Temple Mount and Jesus is at one after another. And he's just basically giving this indictment against them. He says, what in the world are you thinking? Verse 23 For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You are blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. You know what pepper is. You You have it at home, right? Most of you do, right? And can you imagine if you counted it out? And a tenth of it, like you gave, like as an offering, that would be, that seems ridiculous. That is an essence of what Jesus is saying. Now, the law certainly says that you should, have, you should give 10%. Okay? There was a tithe. There was a, they actually gave more than that. Uh, you've got Abraham even before the law doing it. You have his grandson doing it. It's established in the law. Giving of 10% was, was merely the custom. Now, in the New Testament, guess what? You're not even limited to 10%. It's actually not a tithe associated or assigned in the New Testament, rather free will giving and offering. I mean, you're not limited to 10%. 10% is a great benchmark that every Christian should really see if they couldn't be in that, at that benchmark. I mean, that will cause you to walk by faith, but it's not assigned. You've got to give 10%. You can give more. But these guys were actually parsing out every little, little piece of dill. And Jesus says, you know, this comes off as pseudo-righteousness. You have stepped on this landmine of losing the big picture. You're all caught up, and this is exactly how legalists are. They get caught up in all these fine little petty details. But they miss the big picture. The big picture, Jesus says, is what? You are forgetting the very essence of the law itself, which is to establish justice. That means that your, your ethics and your decisions are in harmony with God's moral standards. That you are a just person 
is actually concerned about victims of perpetrators. That when you settle disputes, you do so fairly. But let me tell you something else. In the Bible, when you find someone who is experiencing or expressing justice, they actually had a responsibility to the poor and those who were disadvantaged. They were just. This is the heart of the law, that you would be just, not follow some sort of legalistic standard. And furthermore, that you are merciful, that you have compassion upon a person that needs help. This is the heart of God. God just loves those who are broken in spirit, who are facing problems. His, his heart goes out to him. He, he desires to bring rescue to him. And he often does it through his people. And faithfulness, faithfulness to God, his word, his mission. You know what his mission is, by the way? What is God's mission? It's going to be hard to be faithful to the mission if you don't know what it is, right? What's the mission? Well, okay, I, I hear a few people. Let me tell you, you don't have a microphone, but I'll, I think I, this is what I heard. In Matthew 28, we are to go and make disciples of all the nations. That's the mission. Do what Jesus is saying. There is my heart has been manifested in the law, and you took the law and you made it into some sort of legalistic standard where you're starting to take like little herbs from your garden and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and the tenth one will go to the temple. And there wasn't even a law to do that with garden herbs. In essence, they were missing it. They had missed the big picture. And can that happen today? Can Christians land on this landmine where you miss the big picture? Guess what? Happens all the time. For instance, problems occur when you are far more concerned about earrings, eyeliner, hair length, and tattoos, rather than the condition of your soul and your heart. <gasps> Look at that! I got a tattoo! <laughs> and, and we just come all unraveled as if, like, that is the end of the world. When it absolutely is not at the heart of the gospel. See, we need to be majoring on the majors. That is the leadership principle. Let us have our hearts captured by God, His glory, the absolute need for the gospel to go forth, not only in our community, but in the world. Let us have a heart captured by God. Don't be worried about it. You know, I think that lady's eyeliner is a little too thick. Something's totally wrong, and you just get yourself all worked up in a little bundle or something like that. You know, come on. That's majoring on the minors. That is exactly what they were doing. You see, when we, uh, we're more concerned about whether we have a Bible in our home, and most of you have a Bible in your home, man, if we, have, we could figure out, like, some of you probably have, like, ten Bibles in your home. Wow. Let me ask you, how much is the Bible in your heart and coming out of your life. I'm not really concerned about that, but I have ten Bibles, though. You want to see them? Look at this. Two of them are still in the package. Look at that. Whoa, I got, I got this one on sale. You know, it actually matches my dress or something. You know, we're concerned about that. But you know what? God wants us concerned about the major themes. His heart, justice, mercy, love, faithfulness to him, his mission, his people. Majoring on the majors. And let me give you another one for parents. When you are focused on the external behavior of your kids, I just want them acting right. I don't care what's going on. I just I want them acting right. When you are not concerned about what's going on in their heart, you are kind of focusing on the minor issues. Let me tell you the, the leadership principle here. Major on the majors. Major on the majors. Let me give you another landmine. Landmine number nine. This one, well, this is serious. Not addressing internal erosion and corruption. Beginning in verse 
25. But by the way, I, I, I want to make sure I mentioned verse 24 there. You see where he's talking about blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel? You see that? What they would do is they would actually run their, their wine or whatever they're drinking through this fine cloth. And they did it because they didn't want to swallow a gnat, which is the smallest of the unclean animals. Jesus says, you know what this kind of hypocrisy looks like? You got the gnat. Good job. Where'd you go? You didn't swallow a gnat. On the other hand, you're chowing down on a camel, which was the largest of the unclean animals. And what he's confronting there is how they completely lost sight. You and I look like that when we're focusing on the minors, not on the majors. Which kind of leads us to why do you actually do that? Landmine number nine, not addressing internal erosion and corruption. Look at what Jesus says, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Or you could even translate that word greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. Let me tell you a little bit about dishwashing. Let me tell you how this works. First, clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Jesus is saying, you know what's happening? You're so concerned about the externals. What you look like, how you appear, the facade that you're presenting to everybody, that you've missed the internal heart of the matter. You're like a dish that's been cleaned on the outside, but inside is like, what's rotting in there? Smells terrible. Looks disgusting. And he says, no, you live like that. And let me tell you the two things he highlights. Do you see that there? Robbery or greed and self-indulgence. When you are a greedy person, when it is all about you, it is a self-indulgent lifestyle. You don't think about God. You don't think about others. You don't think about how God might be able to use you in the lives of others because, after all, it's all about you. He says, that is corruption. But you've got an image that's squeaky clean. People think nicely about you. You dress nice. You live right. In essence, you're like the Pharisees and scribes. And Jesus says, man, you have landed on a landmine. You've got to deal with the internal issues. And when you deal with the heart, what you're thinking, your mind, your soul, that has a way of then flowing out of your life. That is a beautiful, righteous, holy life. Well, they didn't get that. So Jesus is, I mean, you're, you're, you're seeing him address them. You can almost see that they just like, whoa, what are you talking about here? Jesus says, let me give you one more example of what this looks like when you don't address the internal erosion and corruption. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What he's saying is like, you're like graves on the inside, but outside you look rather ornamental. And this is actually what happened in Israel. They would, because you never wanted to step on a grave. If you did so, automatic. Seven days unclean. Okay? So before the major festivals that took place in Jerusalem, especially Passover, they would go out and all known tombs, they would have them whitewashed with this chalk. Some of them they would decorate. And you would see all these like white spots everywhere. And those were graves. And so if you were a pilgrim making your way to the Passover, I mean, you'd taken a lot of time and effort to get there. The last thing you wanted to do is step on a grave and find yourself ceremonially unclean for seven days. And you couldn't be a part of the Passover. So they saw these graves and they would walk around them. You see, they looked rather beautiful. I mean, it's white, kind of shiny. Someone decorated that. But inside there, 
decay, death. Jesus says, that's what you're like. When you do not address the internal issues of your heart, yet yet you try to look all good on the outside, you're dead inside, and I can tell. On May 2010, Tropical Storm Agatha took place, and and it, in its devastation there, especially in Guatemala City, you may have remembered this. If you saw a picture of this, you will not forget it. But in Guatemala City, there was a sinkhole that developed right in the heart of the town. It went 330 feet deep. I mean, it took a three-story factory with it, poles for electricity, even a security guard. And then they had an additional 300 homes and businesses around there that were in complete danger. And this thing dropped 330 feet. Just like, it's just gone. What happened? Now, we're familiar in Texas with sinkholes. I mean, it disrupts traffic patterns and things like that. There's still a road that I have to always drive around because of a sinkhole. And what happens is that the the rock material, that when it comes in contact with water and it's like limestone, it just washes away really quickly. See, outside, on on the surface, it all looks real good. Sure, it looks like a road you can drive over. But then all of a sudden, whether it be in a storm or just suddenly, there's this huge hole that has developed. And then just collapses. You know, that's a sinkhole. You're familiar with sinkholes. But are you a living sinkhole? What is going on in your life? Have you addressed the internal issues? You know, our interior lives, they can sometimes look like the danger zone of a sinkhole. If, let me just tell you, if you're too busy to spend time with God, what do you say? Are you too busy to spend time with God? Will you refuse to deal with the issues of your past, those past hurts, your habitual sins? Of course, you're not advertising it this morning, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. Whether it be pornography or some sort of thing that you've got going, something that gambling, stealing, you know what it is. Or you've got some sort of secret addiction or a character flaw and you are not willing to address it. You will not get help for it. You try to, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to be in denial. I'm just going to, but it's eating you away. You're like a sinkhole and it's going to happen. Oftentimes it surfaces in a storm because that's when you feel the most unstable anyway. So you run to your problem, your little drug that gets you through your problems. But eventually one day you're going to collapse. And I've seen it. You've probably seen it with people. Maybe you've even experienced it. You know what happened? You never dwelt with the heart issues. Jesus says this is hypocrisy. In fact, you see this in verse 28. This is really important. He actually tells you a real a big hint in verse 28. But inwardly you're full of hypocrisy. You got used to putting on a show. You got used to putting on a game, a facade that you're fine. And it's really easy to do that, especially in southern culture, especially in Texas. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm good. I know the answers. John 3.16. I'm very familiar with that verse. Oh, yeah. I know all about the Bible. I got 10. I told you earlier. But in reality, you've never addressed the real hard issues. You're a sinkhole and you're a disaster waiting to happen. And look at the other one. Lawlessness. Did you see that in verse 28? Lawlessness is when you know the law. You know what God has said in his word and you refuse to do it. All of a sudden, the Bible became optional. (laughs) Well, I know it says to love my neighbor or to forgive and I'm not going to do that. I'm mad. I don't. And and it could be on a wide variety of things, helping, caring, extending care, praying without ceasing, 
giving. No, I'm not going to do that. You develop patterns of lawlessness, lawlessness and hypocrisy, and you know what happens? You start eroding on the inside. You look good, and one day you collapse. Let me tell you, leadership always begins with the heart. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. It starts in your heart. And your heart is not just your feelings. It has the idea of the idea of your mind and your ability to reason and make rational decisions. The first person you want to examine is you, yourself. Let me give you the leadership principle number nine. Start with the heart. If you're going to lead well, you've got to start with the heart. You've got to ask these questions. Why do I really do what I do? And if you've got issues... Like right now, it got really quiet in here. Do you notice that? You know why? Because we have hit upon a serious nerve. If you got problems like ones I just mentioned, you need to get help. Don't erode any further. The bigger the sinkhole, the bigger the damage. Address it. Get help. And what will happen is you're going to become compassionate to others who struggle. And guess what? This will let me in a little secret. Guess what? Every single person has issues they're working on. Really? All of us. We're all big sinners. We're failures. We all have issues. Isn't that great? Starting with me. And when you're like, you know what? I can be compassionate with you, 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 and you can be compassionate with me because you know what? We all have internal issues that we must address. And let me give you the other thing, though. It gives you great insight in working with others because you've been down the path yourself. You understand the importance of prayer and following the word. Well, let me tell you, it's not about perfection. Don't get the idea that you've got to be perfect before you can move forward or God can really use you. Ah, not at all. God seems to pride himself in using broken, unqualified folks. He's not so interested in perfection so much as direction, that you're living in light of your relationship with Christ. The gospel is more real and powerful today in your life than it was the day that you began with him. You see yourself as my sin has been paid for and I'm alive in Christ. He's my power. He's my presence. He's my peace. And he's the one who gives me perspective. Leadership principle number nine, start with your heart. Well, there's two more landmines and they're huge. Landmine number 10, self-righteousness. Beginning in verse 29, he's going to start talking about self-righteous individuals. Look at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you, you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And that's what they would do. In fact, Herod even built a tomb to David and Solomon. And he, I mean, it was highly ornate. I mean, they were into this. But Jesus said, let me give you a little history lesson. And you say this. If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would have never done this. We would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Oh, no, no, no. Our fathers were misguided. They didn't quite see the big picture. Of course, we wouldn't do it. You know why they say these things, don't you? Because they're self-righteous. Man, when you think you are it, and you got it all together, you start making statements like this. I would have never done that. Sure you would have. Look at Jesus says, verse 31. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And when he says sons, are uses a word that says that you have the exact same characteristics. He says... You testify against yourself that you're sons of those who murdered the prophets and you fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers 
You are serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? And what he's saying is, this is really interesting. You pride yourself in saying, oh, you know why we adorn these, these monuments and these graves of the, the prophets? Because we would have never done so ourselves. But what are they planning to do? Anybody remember? What are they planning to do right now? They're planning to kill the Messiah, Jesus. The whole Old Testament points to this God-man who takes away sins. Isaiah 53, they know he's it. He does these miracles. He's totally blown them away with his insight and wisdom in the word. People are calling him the son of David. And at this very present time, they're planning on killing him. And yet there's, they would play the card. Of course we wouldn't do those things. You know what that all is? That is hypocrisy. They are deceivers like verse 33, the serpents. You know, that, that's kind of like the snake in the garden. That's kind of what you're like. Verse 34, he says, therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Who's sending? Verse 34. Jesus is. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. Remember him? Genesis 4, first family. His brother killed him. Cain killed him. Why? Doesn't like him. Doesn't like that. His sacrifice wasn't accepted by God. Abel's was. What do you do when you're mad? You kill your brother, right? And Abel's blood cries from the ground. This justice must be satisfied. But it starts with Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Let me tell you, you're just adding this all up to the condemnation that you will receive. He says, verse 36, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The guilt of your fathers and your guilt is going to happen to you. In fact, judgment is coming. And that's exactly what takes place. A.D. 70, Jerusalem is totally destroyed. You've got a lot of people that die. Why? Because judgment had come upon an unbelieving people. Does God really care about his people being deceived? Does he? Absolutely. You remember uh, that... C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Remember that? Sometimes you're reading this. By the way, you probably will never hear Matthew 23 preached in another church. Do you know why? No one likes to think that Jesus would be upset with hypocrisy. That Jesus is going to come down hard with judgment. We like Jesus to be just, just a nice reformer. that just, He just emanates love and he only thinks about love. And he only says things that we consider loving. But he is also just and he's going to bring about judgment. In Lion, Witch, and Rorbrum, Jesus, the king, the king of creation, he's, he's actually portrayed by this character, Aslan. Remember Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, the talking beavers? I mean, that's totally realistic. But do you remember that? Remember the beavers are talking to the kids, okay? This is, wasn't a true story. I didn't want to wreck it for you, but that, that didn't really happen. Okay, the beavers were talking with the kids, and remember they were asking about Aslan, okay? Aslan the lion, who represented Christ the king. And they're like, you know, oh, who is Aslan? Aslan, you know, Mr. Beaver said, you know, what? Why don't you know? Why, he's the king. I mean, he's the lord of the whole wood. Remember when they ask, have this big discussion about who Aslan is? And then Lucy asked this question there. Well, then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Wow. Don't you hear what Mr. Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Don't get the idea that God's just safe. He's never going to bring about judgment. No, he is going to judge sin. But he's good and he's gracious. And Jesus is confronting these people and he's saying, hey, you're the ones who 
you're just like your father. You brought about all this murder. In fact, you're planning on murdering me. Truly, I say to you, all these things are going to come upon this generation. Now, there is there is some leadership principle that you need to be aware of. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, you know where what happens here? They saw themselves in the wrong perspective. Let me give you a guy from history. You probably are familiar with Joseph Stalin. He was the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union Central Committee. And yet Joseph Stalin, he, he wanted himself portrayed in a particular way. He actually gave himself a pseudonym. His name actually wasn't Stalin. Did you know he actually gave him that name? Do you know what that name means in Russian? Man of Steel. He's the original Superman right there. He called it Stalin, Man of Steel. But Stalin had some issues. For instance, he could never get over the fact that he was only five feet, four inches tall. Okay? Really? I mean, all he's portrayed in the statues and in this painting like he's a giant. The other thing, and he was injured as a kid, and his left hand was somewhat withered and, had, and was very stiff. And so he was, was always hiding that. In fact, even in the painting, he's hidden. He had his artist, when he did this portrait of him, to actually get down real low to make him look like a giant. Because he wanted that perspective spread around all the people, both in the Soviet Union and without. You see, we do the same thing. We, we step on the landmine of self-righteousness when it's all about how we're portraying ourselves to others. You've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to be honest. The leadership principle, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And let me give you the, the final landmine. The final landmine is a failure to trust Christ. Look at verse 37. Jesus says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who sent her. Now, I want you to see the tenderness of Jesus in these statements. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. I, I wanted to do. Now, this is a loaded statement because God was portrayed as like an eagle that would actually put his wings over his people. And protect them and care for them. Jesus says, that's me. I'm the one who sent you the prophets. I'm the one I wanted to gather you together. I wanted to protect you. I wanted you to experience the joy of knowing me. This would be a very different scenario if you actually knew who I was and you'd come to me. But you were unwilling. You had every opportunity. I send you prophets. I warn you. I give you grace. I give you rain. I give you food. And you were unwilling. And so he says, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm walking away. Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, talks about the departing of God's Shekinah glory from his temple. And it goes off to the east, to the Mount of Olives. In chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus leaves the temple. And as he does... He's leaving their house desolate. When he says in verse 39, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That's from Psalm 118, verse 26. That is what the people were saying when Jesus came into Jerusalem. And Jesus says, that's what one day the Jewish people will say of me. After a time of great tribulation, which he outlines in chapter 24, one day they're going to say this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because they will see me for who I really am. Let me tell you the final landmine. 
And that is a failure to place your trust in Jesus Christ. You see, the principle here is every single one of us must come to a place where we truly trust Christ if we're to experience his life in this life. There's a helicopter pilot by the name of Ian McConnell. And when Hurricane Katrina hit, he was one of the guys who was activated August 30th, 2005. The Coast Guard Aviation Training Center in Mobile, Alabama, which actually became one of the very first centers for Hurricane Katrina relief, he and all these other fellow pilots and rescuers were sent up in the air 24-7 to provide rescue for all these people. When they first got up there, before any press got in there, they were, they were totally blown away by the devastation caused by Katrina. When you had railroad tracks pushed 15 feet away from where they once were, you've got a houseboat flowing down Highway 90. New Orleans is completely covered in water. And they went out and they were trying to rescue these people. And they were pretty successful at, for, for their first three missions. They rescued 89 people, a few dogs, cats. But on the fourth mission, you know what happened? They rescued zero people. It wasn't because they didn't try. They'd go in down and, and these people go, no, I don't want to be rescued. They're sitting on top of their houses. No, just bring me food and water. And like, come on, you cannot make it through this. It's, the water's not going down by lunchtime. And yet he, they were always rejected. In an interview when he was talking about these experiences, he said, I felt frustrated and angry. We used up so much precious time and fuel, and we put ourselves in risk during every single attempt. He said, you know, I felt like they were ungrateful. But the truth, they did not know how desperate their situation was. You see, what was true for the people in New Orleans and Mobile, Alabama, it's true of the Pharisees and scribes, it is the truth today. There are so many people that don't realize just how dangerous the situation is. There's landmines everywhere. We absolutely need Christ. In fact, the failures in our life, and we've all got them, the failures in our life are meant to bring us to faith in Christ. And that is the gospel. You come to me with your brokenness. I will give you healing and life. So these are the landmines in life, friends. You don't want to step on them. And if you're on one, run to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. That clearly delineates potential from problems, truth from lies, life from death. Father, through the power of Christ, guide us in the way of righteousness, forgive us of our sins, and make us whole. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.